0: Start. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writingmfa.
1: You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life
0: do you think it would be better or worse if one of us got the coronavirus and like part of the drama of the podcast was like does the guy improve
1: better or worse than what
0: what our current model (laughs)
1: our current model is more sustainable in the sense that nobody might die
0: our movie, yeah, our current model is like a Kelly Reichert movie, where you like kind of know nothing. You're not going to see the bad thing. <laughs> you want to turn into the new Alex Garland script? Yes.
1: Welcome, one and all, to a movie reviewing, reappraising, genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Pfeiffer, and joining me on the other line. I'll let you say your own name. I don't know why I jumped in.
0: It's Noah Ballard. It has been for a while. It will continue That's to be. That's what it is. Noah Ballard. That's
1: yeah. not how I've been saying it.
0: Do people mispronounce your name, Chance? Like when they call you, like people, strangers, telemarketers?
1: Uh, like I'll get definitely get a solemn or a puffifer. Or, as we've discussed, like, Chase from people I have actual relationships with.
0: It's so weird how, like, all of the women of a certain age... Is this where your resentment towards women of a certain age comes from, is the fact that they can't remember your name?
1: (laughs) Completely fucked as a line of questioning, and I do not acknowledge it. (laughs) Do not have any resentment toward women of a certain age because I thought the movie The
0: Wife was mediocre.
1: (laughs) This is not a bit that should continue.
0: Anyway, we're still alive. We're still here. (laughs) We're still recording a podcast.
1: Uh, And we're as happy to be on the Playlist Podcast Network as I'm sure they are to have us after those comments you just heard. You should find the Playlist Podcast Network feed wherever you get your shows, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. And please check out our fellow shows on the Playlist Podcast Network, like The Fourth Wall of the Discourse, Indie Beat, and uh, any sort of like non-assimilated, non-categorizable shows, of which we'll be having one pretty soon.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's the big news. I teased it a little bit on Instagram, and two people asked me about it in passing. So the I, well, the <laughs> anticipation seems to be at an all-time high. For the truly
1: groundbreaking... Announcement that we're gonna review a TV show by the same person that we're doing a movie podcast about.
0: It seems like a departure to me. Let's hope it's the it's a leap in the the right direction. um Yeah, I mean, with movies effectively not coming out and streaming being the thing we'll have to interact with at least for the next few weeks. I thought it'd be interesting to do a deep dive on a visual artist such as Alex Garland. And I mean, he's like a, he's all over the place. He's a novelist. He's a filmmaker. And now he's like a showrunner. Right. And so we were going to do, because Hulu and FX just put out that show devs um, that he did. We're going to do, we're going to do a deep dive into the first half and then the second half of that, of that series.
1: For now though, movies, it's still only movies. Don't, I won't hear of any more TV.
0: Um at least till tomorrow when we record the podcast where we devoted <that's> to TV right. for an hour.
1: And like ten minutes from now when you reference devs, which I would encourage you to do. Um, but we're gonna talk some Alex Garland movies on today's program. We're gonna keep the main emphasis on some of his screenwriting credits from earlier in his career. Um primarily because We have reviewed in full Ex Machina and Annihilation before, though. I think we should probably talk a little bit about both still. But yeah, Alex Garland, what's the setup here, Noah? He writes a book called The Beach in 1996, right?
0: So he first writes the novel The Beach, which is, of course, then optioned and made. That's a movie we can talk about. Have you seen that, Chance? I have not. I watched it again just for for gigs well i guess i didn't realize that he didn't write the script until i watched the opening credits after i'd spent the four dollars on amazon and then was just like ah fuck it so i ended up watching that it's interesting but it
1: is curiously directed by danny boyle who then goes on to make the next two garland collaborations we're talking about
0: absolutely um and then he gets attached for subsequent movies after the beach to do the screenplays and that's what we're going to talk about and then, yeah, he moves into his own space with movies we've talked about with Annihilation um, and with Ex Machina, which are they're all of a similar kind of movie. And we'll get into that, of course, when we you know have this podcast right now. Um, but yeah, and then moving towards this idea of the money now is in being a showrunner for one of these streaming shows. He's now right. moved from writer director to, you know, like whoever, maybe like a Sam Ishmael with Mr. Robot kind of thing.
1: It's almost kind of curious that it took him so long to get on TV because that idea, that sort of bygone, more like William Goldman, like I'm just going to be a top dollar, like original screenwriter for hire, which you see with like 28 Days Later and Sunshine is now like barely possible, if not possible at all in the studio system. So you see him basically start to direct... And then, yeah, ends up. I think that David Benioff would be another analog. Oh, sure. But yeah, Garland firmly in the sci fi space.
0: And they're all sort of of a similar sensibility and like universal humor, shall we say. Where, like, in these movies, the same kind of like cosmic fuck you will always render <laughs> itself before the end. I wondered how fine a point you were going to put
1: on it. But, um, yeah, I think it's a fascinating question as to whether there is any, like, larger hope or good feeling in his movies. Because on an, one thing he truly does not care about is, like, the physical well-being of the hero of his movies. Like, fuck the individual is, like, what a lot of his movies seem to say at the end, even when you have care for the character. Um, whether we are just hurtling toward the inevitable apocalypse or whether life is just evolving in a more interesting way, a la Annihilation, or in something like Dread, which is just sort of like blatantly and like nihilist. Um,
0: but the cosmic, fuck
1: you, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: but they all have this sort of this sense of irony that in the present condition, is it can be tough to watch five movies back-to-back, and then a whole series front to back uh, without getting sucked into that headspace a little bit and that, like, sort of thinking.
1: Yeah, the universe may balance, but, like, our hero is scathed forever, or dead, or stardust. So,
0: tell me about the beach. The beach is weird. Um, It's Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's hanging out in Southeast Asia, and fucking robert carlisle bursts through this window i've just come from this island and i have this map to get back to the island but like i can't go back but you should if you're looking for like salvation and like the thing you are as an american living in or traveling around southeast asia you will find it at this island like half of the island is like a drug growing island run by these these gangsters and the other side of the island is a utopia and they sort of exist in this yin and the yang and because Leo and this couple show up onto the island it like is the thing that pushes it over the edge that it can no longer exist
1: oh interesting
0: so it sort of has questions of these like small social units okay, and they're way away from everybody else you know it kind of reminds me most of sunshine of like here's this group and they feel like they're on a noble mission but then like I don't know it gets thrown off course but yeah that's interesting it's it's not like a great movie uh it it feels very novelistic like much like maybe uh, never let me go benefits sure. from being a novel first um yeah but it's it's certainly like, thought-provoking enough that you can see why it got enough radar around it that people were aware of both Danny Boyle and Alex Garland going forward. Interesting bit of trivia. It
1: was Nick Hornby who sort of, like, in his review of that novel, crowned Garland, like, oh, great voice of Gen X. Hornby himself has that exact same reputation and he's the person uh, about whom we're going to podcast next with movies like High Fidelity and About a Boy. Nice. Isn't that weird? I wonder if that's a thing. of Can we accuse Gen Xers of just anointing other voices of Gen X? Is that something they like to do?
0: It's just one white guy handing it to the next white guy. (laughs) Me in a record store, you in a spaceship. Yeah, whatever floats your boat, man.
1: So that brings us to 28 Days Later. Which is 2002? Is that right? Boy, is it ever! And this time, Garland is working directly with Danny Boyle on this production. Um, this is a fairly famous movie that I had never seen.
0: Oh, uh, man. Mostly, be- mostly because I was just averse to horror movies at that age. I remember seeing this like right when it came out, and it's scaring the bejesus out of me. Sure, I can imagine. All these movies are pretty tense. Hello! No! No! So who are you? I wake up today in the hospital. I wake up and I'm, I'm hallucinating. No! I've got some bad news.
1: They're infected. Infected!
0: Oh. Infected with Oh, shouldn't have done that. It's the blood. There's something in the
1: blood. So 28 Days Later begins with a harrowing, like, opening set piece where these animal rights activists were to assume, believe that Noah's already. Palming his face as if to be like guys don't do it (laughs) Don't let the chips out of the cages Not the ones literally filled with rage I think it speaks to the way Garland views He's also very interested perhaps in the inherent abuses of power That come along with wielding scientific knowledge Because the movie doesn't seem to say that the activists are like morally incorrect because when you see the opening of the chimps in these like horrible cages and that one who's got all the nodes on his head as he's just being shown like different images of riots around the world throughout the 90s and 2000s you're like this is the prototypical if not exaggerated kind of horror show of live animal testing that we've been taught to beware of. Like, it is true. They are doing gross shit. It just so happens that they've wielded the power to such an extent that you should not let the monkeys out of the cages.
0: And there's also the visual irony, too, of showing, yes, these, like, violent moments on mass public display uh, on these televisions, but it's the visual irony of like, would you be able to tell if somebody had a virus in them that made them extra violent because of the situation that some people are already in? And so right. then, for an animal rights is just the the microcosm they choose to go with to like not make the movie too political. But yeah, sure. sure. But it's also kind of a goofy way to start this movie, isn't it? Like as a prologue, a it's, bit. It's very like. Like uh, airport thriller kind of, you know, prologue. You know, twenty eight days. It's Crichton-y. Yeah, it is Crichton-y, Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of surprising about this movie. I had seen this, so I sort of know knew the beats of it. But it, remembering that it picked up there was kind of like a weird false note to begin on, because it's otherwise kind of a premise one takey kind of movie where it never moves away from Killian Murphy
1: sure yeah and i don't it's not like literally one take at all it's
0: no Boyle. but it has like a lot of long shots i mean of course it also right. has danny boyle's like insane cutaway so much so that you often can't see the action on screen
1: yeah so let's talk about this sort of visual style so they film with like very early like camcorders and yeah. are like super committed to the not even like shaky cam as like a style like the big opening of Cloverfield it's just like this is like the visual palette of this movie is just is so lo-fi and one of the really cool things especially like in that lab scene at the beginning is a lot of them are like surveillance camera angles like you'll catch people from the same like angle right. that a you know a, cor- a corner surveillance camera would but then it becomes very sort of invigorating and sneakily cinematic when Boyle actually does kind of tee up the conventional action movie thing, but with the same technology, like the POV shot of the chimp running down the cage corridor out at the woman is the same way that uh, Michael Bay um, or John McTiernan would probably shoot that scene. It's just in the Danny Boyle language.
0: Yeah, and then the sort of guerrilla style of this, knowing full well that it like is in London at the outset and not on some soundstage and not rendered digitally gives this movie like a strange authenticity to it that it feels like a sort of oh documentary.
1: God. So the plot is that Killian Murphy's a bike messenger who got whacked on the head and has been out for four weeks, during which time all of England, more or less, has been. It's basically the Jared Leto ravaged. story
0: about him coming back to coronavirus.
1: <laughs> um, I'm glad
0: that's still carrying water at your in your place. Um, I think about it I for- hourly. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that already. The um, story, if you hadn't heard it, was that Jared Leto went into like a soundless retreat or something for ten days right. in the forest and came back, and coronavirus was like suddenly. Out of nowhere a thing Right I don't think it affected his life at all So Murphy wakes up
1: Everyone's gone And then the Yeah the You can't really can't say enough About how incredible those Shots of London Utterly empty are Are at the beginning Because none of it's faked It's all shot in the 5.30 a.m. to, like, 6 a.m. quiet. Like, that's their window. And uh, trivially enough, it's also, like, right before 9-11. Boyle has said that, like, had they tried to... They finished a lot of the movie after 9-11, but he says they would not have been able to clear streets and get those
0: permissions. Um, Oh, for sure. It's eerie as hell. Yeah, the day they were shooting the the omelet scene was 9-11, or according Mm. to IMDb. So the first sequence is sort of interesting cuz you're kind of waiting for that first scare, right? Cuz at first it's like there's nobody around and like as eerie as it is that it's everywhere is empty and places you expect to see bustling are not. You also kind of know in the back of your mind that this is like a zombie movie, so like what's going to happen? For and sure. I think the way that it's done is so smart. He goes into this church because like I guess that's the That's the last place people go before they, whatever shitty happens. How very English. And he finds it filled with bodies. He sort of demoralized, shouts out like, hello. And these three fucking heads pop out of the dead bodies and turn and face him. Like, and you know, like, it's on. And then, of course, the famous shot of the the priest running at him, coughing and like right. reaching for him. Ugh, it's very. He Boyle knows how to build those like sudden tone changes, like going from utter despair to to terror. Uh, he's a he's a master. And the fact that Boyle
1: can kind of like in the dark just have an actor poke their head up like a dog who just you just called to see if they want a treat i don't know horrifying human actor and it happens later with the guy in the contacts in the window it's one of the best scares of the movie but it's it something so jarring about how it fits into a, to camera work that you wouldn't think it could really fit into
0: yeah absolutely and like when the the, the sort of visual creation of like when these guys get out in the open like they're fast and like, well, this is one of the things uh, mature horror
1: heads would know better than us, but this is a very early like example of the fast zombie, which you then see like again, all through like 2000s depictions.
0: We should say that not only is this movie easily categorized by being like an Alex Garland movie and doing it that way, it's also like of a conversation of zombie stuff that kind of got a huge burst and kind of got a huge bump from this. The success of this movie Both critical and commercial Sure
1: yeah you've got I mean you obviously have The Walking Dead Becomes a utter phenomenon Like six seven years after this Right um, But also like I Am Legend Like owes so much to this movie
0: Dawn of the Dead will come two years later Yeah
1: that's Snyder
0: remaking Romero
1: Before we Talk about acting and just kind of Round out our be real style discussion here where do you where do you see garland in what in its setup is still very conventional like zombie premise
0: it is uh but it is still like a a dystopian kind of conceit of oh it's you know everybody gets this virus or gets picked off by the people who do have the virus kind Mm -hmm. of thing which i think would attract him but i also think it's the cosmic fuck you moment so there's two that i'd point out not to spoil anything this is a movie that's 20 years old um when they get to the army they they're right to. it's before they meet the army guys and they pull over the taxi and brendan gleason is trying to like shoo the crow who's picking at like the dead body on that bridge and the drop of blood hits him in the eye. And like, that's the the way, that's the way he gets the fucking virus is by that stupid thing. That is such an Alex Garland moment. Um, And then I think when Killian Murphy shoots out the chain, holding back the, the off the, the soldier that's gotten it, uh, who's chained up and he gets released, which leads to the shot you're talking about earlier uh, with the, the eyeballs in the glass window uh yeah that was such a that's a very garlandian like moment of switchery sure trickeration
1: um which you absolutely i mean similar to ex machina right free the ai and see who gets held accountable the person who freed them or the person who kept them captive for the first place for sure And speaking of, another thing that really reminded me of Ex Machina is he is really good for the most part at when people with power develop a sort of abhorrent to the audience belief system. He's very good at putting the right words in their mouth to have them explain it in not a super like mad scientist stylized way. And in this movie, it's the major who you find out again, spoiler has basically been putting out this broadcast of "Oh, we found a cure," to get women to come to the barracks because he has to like find a way to for his you know eight or ten troops to have hope for the future and repopulating the earth and whatever horrifying way. But he's got the great speech of what is that actor's name? Um,
0: oh, the guy who, who, plays, who plays the bad the guy manager. from Gone in sixty seconds.
1: Yes, the Carpenter. Christopher Eccleston, right? Who really looks like Ray Fiennes in this movie?
0: I kind of remembered it being Ray Fiennes. If I, I was kind of disappointed to see the bad guy from Gone in 60 Seconds pop up in that role. <laughs> I was absolutely googling the other
1: Fiennes siblings to be like, he's got to be somewhere on the Fiennes spectrum, right? He's got the great speech where he shows Killian Murphy that they have locked up one of their infected compatriots, and he's like, "We're keeping him to teach us something." And Killian Murphy. In his great, kind of like completely numbed out way, is like, and has he taught you anything? And the guy says, well, he's, he, he goes, it's in, it's great screenwriting. He goes, in a way, he's teaching me that he'll never bake bread, raise livestock, or sow crops. And eventually, he'll teach me how long it takes for an infected to starve to death. Um, which, like, right there, you should be very, very, very suspicious of this man. But there's something about the. Really ice cold rationalization Of somebody like this And then somebody like Caleb Played by Oscar Isaac and Ex Machina That's very It's chilling because It is half convincing
0: Right Or sort of like Charlotte Rampling Then in Never Let Me Go Yes For sure Yeah He's really attracted To these people These true believers So to speak
1: And they make for Just on a movie level Great speeches For actors Which is I think Why you get so many Good actors in all these movies
0: yes this one's definitely well acted and like naomi harris the fact that she believes the set of rules too where it's like the second you know someone has it you don't let what is it a heartbeat before you just kill them right and that's something that you know of course changes by the end of the film but you see that play out to such dramatic you know effect especially when you know, it's almost sort of Game of Thrones like where it's like, who's the character that's going to get me through this part of the story? And then when are they going to die and who will remain?
1: Right. I think it. I like her in this movie. I think it is a little funny that she already kind of has this like post-apocalyptic Tina Turner look going. Nice. It's like, oh, you were, you, you were ready for a shit to hit the fan because <laughs> you already kind of looked like a Mad Max character with that yeah. haircut. Let's see. There's one other thing I love about this movie, but is there anything we want to cover that uh, didn't quite do it for us?
0: I think this movie gets a little long, maybe. Like it has two hour forty. I know, but it has like these two sort of distinct acts that I don't know quite like work together. I feel like a lot of Garland movies like have these sort of act breaks where it's like. The before thing and then like the after thing and this one is like they're on their own and then it's like oh when do you trust the system to sort of put things back together and to both of those the answer is like oh like it's it's on us guys i guess but still they're like still looking for that i mean not to i won't spoil the ending but it is sort of an unresolved situation still um sure i don't know i didn't I mean, I get what you're saying about the good screenwriting and whatnot, but as a movie, I thought it kind of got more by the numbers once they get to the ca- to the mansion. Oh really? And like didn't think it was as formally inventive. Um, all, also these movies also have a lot of mansions in them. Sure. He's into a, like a cool house, Alex Garland. I really, really do like it, and I'm probably going to give it a good, good. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: I actually have a little less patience for the. Maybe it felt like sort of like great interiority at the time, but the kind of obligatory like dreams and the the you having to understand that like they are getting post traumatic or they're going through traumatic experiences that are affecting their ability to sleep like in real time. I get that that kind of has to be there, but it it also just kind of feels like ex- like excuses for Danny Boyle to trip the fuck out.
0: Yeah, this movie, when it gets a little trippy, and that's why I like the Danny Boyle stuff, especially outside. Like, I think in mm-hmm. London, he gives that frenetic, like, he, he sort of knows what to do with it, but when he gets sort of, he gets trapped, he also gets kind of freaked out, and I think that's also an issue with uh, Sunshine, which we'll talk about in a second. Um yeah. But maybe that's what I mean. Maybe it's because the storytelling gets so interior in the second half that it's, like, not as much fun, maybe.
1: I'm also not sure when you... I think I think you're... Where I agree more is probably just the, like, by the numbers thing. The fact that they get, like, stuck with the daughter who they have to take right. care of is kind of like... I don't really know what the, the efficacy of that is. And or, like, like, what's the, to be really gained.
0: And the corruptible, like, lieutenant-level... Military person who like Has a secret plan is like Kind of tropey as well Oh for sure for sure
1: um, The best part of this movie though for me Bar none and I love 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 the way they like They hope you're on board and don't spell it out Is the fact that Once Killian Murphy Escapes the mansion escapes execution And comes back to rescue people He begins to resemble more and more The fictional trope of The zombie as this sort of, like, the wan, skinny, shirtless guy careening around without, like, a thought in his head, no inhibitions whatsoever. And I think that's supposed to kind of dawn on you slowly of, like, he's, he, he basically has become one of the infected to, infected to beat these guys. Um, and then right. they just kind of tie a ribbon on it where Naomi Harris almost kills him. Because he looks so much like your cartoon zombie. But they don't spell it out up until that point. I think that's a good idea. That is interesting. Idea. I
0: like that moment where she only realizes at the absolute last second that he is not infected. Because, he, he yeah, he does sort of physically resemble them. That's interesting. We want to rate this puppy? Yeah, I mean, I said it already, I think. But good, good for me. I think it's good, good, too.
1: Um, my mind was not exactly blown, but... Uh, I can see, one of the interesting things is you can see how Boyle and Garland are such a great fit and sometimes not quite a great fit, and we'll talk about that in Sunshine, and we'll talk about that as we kind of move ahead. All right, you want to go to 2007?
0: What happened that year? Why did you bring that up?
1: It's the year Sunshine came out. Oh, nice. That movie we're discussing now.
0: (laughs) I remember renting the DVD of Sunshine well, renting is a strong word. I borrowed it from the video store where I worked, uh, sure. which was allowed. It wasn't wasn't stealing.
1: You could take they, a covert loaner?
0: Yeah, at the end of the night, if nobody had rented it and you weren't like keeping them from making money, you could watch it to like give recommendations to people. That was encouraged.
1: Oh, wow. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, that plays with the hell out of business as fast as it could. <laughs> what was RIP, it called? R.I.P. Princeton Video. There it is. There in the Princeton Shopping Center.
1: And what did you make of Sunshine at the time?
0: I couldn't remember anything about it other than at some point someone gets absolutely just like toasted from the sun.
1: (laughs) Here's another original script from Garland with Danny Boyle yet
0: again. Danny Boyle, yeah. Uh, Synopsis, a team of international astronauts are sent on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun with a nuclear fission bomb in the year 2057 coming up guys the big twist of this movie is how did we not do it on either of our research
1: mission is not what it seems episodes
0: technically not a research mission i would put this in like with a movie like the core um, or armageddon armageddon yeah or even deep impact
1: doesn't fit that's why you're the keeper of the categories
0: yeah we got killian murphy again too they must have liked him in 28 days later he's the physicist he's in charge of the bomb and they have a bomb the size of Manhattan Island hurtling towards the sun behind this like big Ray-Ban that they're all hiding behind.
1: Could you tell that this is an English led production because they called it Manhattan Island, which no one in America would ever call it. Right. Which leads me into another nice bit of trivia, which is Boyle thought it was so funny that uh, Americans would never call it the Icarus. Like, that's way too symbolic, way too dark. They'd call it, like, the Spirit of Hope, and I thought that was, like, a real fuck you for us to name it that.
0: You know what I thought was funny about the name of it is that in the video where Mark Strong, the captain of the Icarus 1, calls it the Icarus 1, why would you call it the Icarus 1 if you thought (laughs) it was going to be successful?
1: Whoa. Are you... The admin of the IMDb goof page, yes, that is pretty legitimate.
0: I believe you found a trademark IMDb goof. I wonder if it's on there. I, I, that came fresh from from my eyes to my mouth. So anyway, yeah, they're hurtling towards the sun in this sort of goofy looking spacecraft that doesn't look like it's coming back. That's no. like the first thing I noticed. It's <laughs> like, well, I just kind of, kind of assumed from the the mission itself that they were not coming back. But then they kind of like play the wink, wink. Oh, yeah, it's got backwards thrusters, too, for the people pod. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Everything on that ship is pointing towards the sun. You guys are not coming back. And, of That's course, funny. things start to present themselves uh, that keep them from both coming back and then ultimately not being able to potentially complete their their mission and deliver the payload. How many times is the word payload used in this movie, Chance? Is it over 10? Yes, a suspicious number of
1: times. Did we say that their goal is to put a nuke in the sun to restart the sun? That the idea kind is of. That the sun is, is a that, dying Is that ever star?
0: explained? I mean, it's explained here in the IMDb line, but I don't know that the movie says anything more than like, we derive all of our warmth from the sun, and <laughs> I was on a mission to save it. <laughs>
1: I think Garland has a little bit too much pride as a sci-fi writer to have the thing where, like, the cook is like, "So what's this crazy mission again?" And someone's like, "Let me show you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you
0: in this PowerPoint presentation that I cooked up just in case you might have asked."
1: It didn't. It didn't bother me that much. I mean, we're in the realm of some real highbrow nonsense here, anyway. The
0: sun, but though the the, uh, the listeners should know, the sun's still very much on. It's not yeah. like a, a smoldering ember. It's, it's very hot still.
1: Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. Sixteen months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus Two. It's a little bit like screenwriter bullshit, but I just go nuts for people who develop these kind of obsessions on the, in these sci-fi stories. So the fact that Cliff Curtis is like, let me look at that motherfucker. And the computer's like, only 1% of character actor Cliff Curtis. And character actor Cliff Curtis is like, turn it up to fucking 3%. She's like, no, that's not safe. But all of these people who are like obsessed to a borderline sexual level... With the sun, I'm mad into that shit.
0: That's so funny because I think that was going to be my biggest critique of the movie. Oh, is I that love, I love it. <laughs> it's sexualization of the sun, mm. and people get like what a beautiful orb. It. Yeah. And did you notice too that Cliff Curtis, like his his skin began begins to get dry and then peel? Incredible. At one point, he just kind of pulls it off like bubble gum off his face. Horrifying. It is horrifying, which of course does not ready you for this movie's <laughs> greatest note.
1: <laughs> we'll get to that in a little bit. Um I think this movie, if I can kind of jump to it, is just a lot more than twenty-eight days later. And there's like so there's like more good and there's more bad. Yeah.
0: Um, it's a full blown, like, alien type movie where yeah, you have a large, well developed cast. Um a lot of really interesting actors in here, too, like, doing interesting things. Uh, mm-hmm. Rose Byrne, she makes it pretty far, I would say. Uh, she does. Not dying in space thing. Um, Michelle Yao is really good in this, too. And she's so right. sad when her plants get burned up. Well, she's kind of like the classic, like, I'm
1: here for, I'm a botanist. And they're like, well, yeah, you'll get really sad when the plants burn. That's your job. And that is... sure.
0: But I felt sad for her when the plants all burned up. Sure. Sure. Yeah.
1: I, I get that. Um, Benedict Wong is very sad about a mistake he makes. Let me
0: ask you this. What? It's a good thing. This isn't really a question. It's more of a statement. True or false, I can Chance? Tell. <laughs> True or false, Chance? Yes. It's a great... Thing that Chris Evans found his role in Captain wow, America. Snow Sharp. Is that what you're going? Snowpiercer? Is you going? Oh to no! Slam I was right going to say it's just a good thing he became Captain America to like let out clearly a lot of like physical energy he needed a place for.
1: Yeah. He's really not very good in roles like this, and like a <laughs> lot of his. Pre Marvel roles are like, like he's too good looking and he's like a little bit smart. So people are like, you're going to play the asshole. Um, and unless he's allowed to do that full bore with sort of like some smarm a la knives out, which I think he's great in, it doesn't really work. And so in this movie, he's just kind of like angry, but he's also mean. And he definitely looks like he's in Fleet Foxes at the beginning. Over oh, sure. Um, I do love, do you ever get that feeling of like, when a prior era that like maybe in the back of your head you think is still going on and then you see something like the haircut of Chris Evans in this movie and you're like, oh, nope, 2007 was a different era entirely. Like we're now Absolutely. done with that decade. That was my feeling.
0: Yeah, it, it took him until like what, 2016 to figure out what he was doing haircut and beard wise. Um, you know who's great again, though, I think is Killian Murphy. He's really good too. He's got some good hair, looking a lot like the lead singer from Goo Goo Dolls. Sure,
1: (laughs) I mean, haven't you said before that his face is kind of an optical illusion?
0: I've thought that before. Maybe I've expressed it.
1: I believe you said it on the when we reviewed Red Eye, um, which I a hundred percent agree with. Because like you catch him from one angle and he's a very handsome man, and you catch him from another angle and you are (laughs) like (laughs) Voldemort. It's true, and that works out really well when it's happening with his character for like, so sometimes in this movie is like, he's clearly the protagonist. He has some sort of uh, romantic thing going on with Rose Byrne. And then one of the best screenwriting and simultaneous acting moments of the movie is where they're taking the vote on whether they should kill or like mercy kill Benedict Wong to make sh- who is like catatonic and suicidal and like they need to make sure they have enough oxygen. One person needs to go. And they're, everyone's kind of grandstanding a little bit and they're like, this is the way it has to go. Like, let's vote. And Killian Murphy, like they look to him and you think like, well, here's our conflicted hero. Like, what's he gonna say in this moment? What Kirk Douglas-esque speech is he gonna give? And he just goes, kill him. And you're like, oh yeah, Killian's turned. He dropped in a, just a subtle kill him.
0: Incredible, yeah. Let's talk to not only about the performances, but just like how gorgeous this movie is visually. It looks great. It does look great. Sun looks great. Apparently, they spent the least amount of time they spent on this movie was actually filming it. Most of this went into like pre-production art, and then the effects afterwards which is so It's not surprising. That's so wild that they spent more money like just building the thing on both the visual and the style level than they did actually making it.
1: Yeah, the production design is gorgeous. Like definitely the use of the color gold owes a lot to like the original Solaris cuz those those suits and uh, you can't really tell if it's just like the reflecting light of the sun, but the fact that they kind of look like glam jousters is uh is very striking
0: yes and i also liked this is one of my favorite i would say ships because it can be creepy when it needs to be creepy but it also like you have the sense that anything can kind of happen and it's sort of fragile too in a way that adds to the the visual tension i love that scene where they're like oh we can just like we can't get from one side of this airlock to the other. Like, we'll just rip off the things from the walls and wrap ourselves with it. Cause this thing like right. comes apart and it's like, it gives you such a sense that, you know, what they're doing is so complicated because it, it's so like, you know, weightless and like w- without real structure to it. So with the reappearance spoiler,
1: if you don't want this older movie spoiled, with the reappearance of Mark Strong who I was giving you shit cuz you kind of spoiled it for me but at the same time like you see Mark Strong in a video at the beginning you're like he's going to be in the movie it's like one of those you know, like if you've seen movies he's too famous not to be Mark in
0: Strong doesn't get out of bed to be in some like prologue video <laughs>
1: um also have we ever t- i don't know if we've ever like really sung his praises on this show before but I, certainly not in the Shazam episode, but I love him just as a physical presence. I mean, like, his, the line of his shaved head and nose and chin, he just kind of looks like a, like a universal movie monster era like Mummy or Frankenstein. For sure, he's so imposing,
0: he is so imposing, and he can be like a force for good, too. Like in 1917, he's just like a oh, that definitely is the colonel. Like, look at him, look at his fucking nose, look at those pins. <laughs> there, yeah, he's um, in this one, he is terrifying.
1: So, his reemergence is both, I think, uh, the movie at its best, but also the movie like coming apart a little bit. Yep it's where the actual garland boyle partnership like over the course of time tends to come apart because when you first see him and he's hanging out in the sun chamber and you know he's he's fully malignant so he's turned that shit up to like 18% and he's just kind of <laughs> <laughs> he's just kind of this like ballrog figure of like pure flame just the form of a man and you're seeing something very like expressionist it's the kind of thing that garland will be very interested in in annihilation right where it's just like the form of people like we've we've hit some plane beyond body horror to just be like simple i don't know like is he god is he a mannequin like what
0: is going on Um, how pissed do you think the makeup artist who probably spent hours putting on third degree birds makeup Entire over the entirety of Mark Strong's body was when she saw this movie and realized the whole thing is obscured. That there is no like steady clear shot of him, not once. There's no, I really, he there's got to be a happy medium between this and like Van Helsing running across with the Dr. Hyde, Mr. Hyde from uh, Van Helsing, Stephen Summers, the right. originator of the term bulbous. This movie yeah. doesn't have to be bulbous to, like, let the makeup sort of do its thing a little bit more. There's a there's not seeing the shark, and then there's just, like, never seeing the shark ever.
1: Yeah, and they kind of also take away – I think he's both the shark, but they also never give him the Quint speech, really. he He kind of talks briefly about how, like, I prayed to God for seven years and something, but that's it.
0: Yeah. And then of course. And I kind of wanted
1: him to rap a little bit.
0: He's got that great moment where his like arm comes off the way like a piece of broiled turkey pulls away from the bone. It's uh right. it's pretty icky.
1: But it's I think you're in the right to use that word here. But I think that this is the issue, is that I don't have a problem where we like pivot into full horror at the end. I think it's terrifying. I think the actors are overqualified to do it. I think Boyle's overqualified to do it. The problem is that like, it's both supposed to be a movie about like how people have lost their mind and the camera has lost its mind. And this is all on some sort of, you know, hellishly sublime plane, but then I'm also still supposed to follow the simple horror mechanics of somebody being in a room that's turning 360 degrees. And it's like, whose instincts are we going here? Because Alex Garland's going to make a movie called Annihilation where we realize this is fully experimental and not totally meant to be understood. But Danny Boyle's still kind of operating under that action movie like, let me know where the knife is thing.
0: Yes, that is interesting to see the difference between the climactic scene of Annihilation and this. Um, I also think Danny Boyle has a tendency especially movies like this, like in Alien, we always know approximately where everybody is. And in this this movie, you lose track of like Rose Byrne at the end. And then Mark Strong really doesn't have like the villain death. Like he's kind of responsible for a lot of this happening. And then he gets, you know, carved. And then like, you don't really see him die, which is sort of not satisfying.
1: Totally. You, I mean, you praise kind of the, understanding the ship in the lead up, but I think as things start to go to hell, not understanding what is happening, like there's a moment before we return to the Mark Strong arm grab where he's like reactivating the payload and things are blowing up and I'm like, okay, this is the end. And then you're like, oh wait, that was only half the thing?
0: Like it doesn't it's not coherent. Right. Spatially. Do you think the ending is earned? The sister and her kids. Oh,
1: oh, oh, oh. Um,
0: Such a weird epilogue, right? It feels like a
1: studio note to me. It does. And I didn't find anything about anybody not liking the ending. But it feels overly hopeful for a Garland script of being like, there are still people making snowmen and they deserve to live. If not incongruous, it's probably the single most traditional hopeful moment of a Garland script in anything we're going to talk about
0: for sure. And I also think like it, it has a lot of characters which we talked about, which is definitely a different choice than 28 days later, but I don't know like this, these movies are tough because of course you're going to like lose the majority of the cast in like intriguing and sad and gross and like funny ways. Um Mm -hmm but I don't know. There's something about like the Rubik's cube of putting this together. Like doesn't make it feel like the deaths or whatever, like all lined up to properly building the tension and then transforming this movie into a, what crept onto our ship movie. Like, why isn't this movie like, no one really talks about this movie. Like what Um, separates it from being like a, like a classic in this sense. I think people are into it are like it only damn made it. 35 million dollars
1: well I think this is like how do you sell how do you sell a movie of mid-tier not quite stars with original sci-fi it's very hard to do it's why he's on FX right now
0: I guess yeah yeah or Hulu sorry but it's a partnership it's with both devs right okay yeah yeah it's coming out on um, FX and then immediately to Hulu
1: I'm gonna give this a good, good, but I also want to kind of clarify that I think that both Ex Machina and Annihilation are significantly better movies than either of these first two we've talked about.
0: For sure, yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair, and it's, I mean, good thing we didn't watch a uh, Tesseract, which I hear is terrible. Adapted from his
1: second novel, where he like gets uncomfortable that the beach was successful and makes it really weird.
0: <laughs> For sure, yeah, I think this is probably. A good bad for me. I think it's stunning, okay. and I think it's it's like a good movie. But I don't know that something about how the pieces fit together. You know, it's not on the if you want to be scared the way like an alien is scary. Um, it doesn't quite hit that. Oh, day, so Students of Halesham are special. Yes, special.
1: Keeping yourselves well. Keeping yourselves healthy inside is of paramount importance.
0: None of you will do anything except live the life that has already been set up for you. And sometime around your third donation, your short life will be complete. That's what you're created to do. 2010 Never Let Me Go, number three here. This one, you, Mr. Garland I, I, decided to adapt the Shiguru novel with the same name. That's right. That's true. Still not directing. This time he teams up with the director of One Hour Photo, one of my favorite movies of all time. Just that, kidding. Was that true? No. Uh, it's I like the movie. <laughs> uh, Mark Romanek. <laughs> Mark Romanek, uh, who does a lot of music videos. So are you
1: primarily a music video director?
0: Famously one of the collaborators on Beyonce's Lemonade.
1: I'm both sort of, I have to say, I both kind of like wish we hadn't done this one because it feels so, so minor. But I also think it's very revealing of things that Alex Garland is into.
0: Things that Alex Garland is into and things that he also has trouble covering up when it comes to sci-fi conceits.
1: Sure. (laughs) Especially when someone is... When he's borrowing them from a more classical, um, like 20th century set Ishiguro novel.
0: Yeah, you can't be dystopic, dystopian when you're taking a literary novel that doesn't give you those answers, unless... Which he'll learn with Annihilation, you take the Jeff Vandermeer, which is just sci-fi, not really that literary, and give it a movie structure that maybe wasn't there.
1: Yeah, this is like much softer sci-fi, verging on just...
0: People don't agree what this... I mean, people said it was great sci-fi when it came out, and then other people were like, no, it's like a literary allegory. It's so interesting how this book is regarded
1: That's interesting. Because I have to say, like, when we got into the back half of this movie, and I wasn't getting any information on what kind of world would allow for uh, part of the population to just have their organs harvested for another part, I was like, there has to be an allegory here. And I just started, like, writing down possible, like, symbols and reads because there was so little um, world building.
0: Let me run this by you. For a yes, movie sir. that spends most of its dialogue talking about what's happening in the movie, it's the one of the it's the of the three the least uh the least understandable worlds rendered
1: far and away. And you're right, they don't do anything except talk about their predicament.
0: It's like, "Oh, it's a shame that we're going to get uh, completed." Completed, yes. After we're gonna have they to donate soon and get organs. completed. Oh, that is a shame.
1: Right. right. Well, and that's what makes me think it's a more of a. I, I kept writing th- before I even knew it was an Ishiguro novel. I was like, this is so much more like, um, like a Huxley or an Orwell or like a Daniel Keys or some sort of like mid twentieth century, more like something you'd read in middle school English class.
0: No, it's from two thousand five.
1: I know, but that's what it reminded me of.
0: I know. Well, it's because it's from... The Remains of the Day is also like a very old-feeling novel, where it's right. like a fucking butler like talks about his life of servitude.
1: Bring it on. I want to watch. Let's sum it up a little bit.
0: The lives of three friends from their early school days into young adulthood, when the reality of the world they live in comes knocking. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: doesn't sound like particularly hard sci-fi when you say it like that does it
0: (laughs) it's not so basically it's well all these movies are kind of like first and second halves it's the before the thing and after the thing so this one is the first half is sort of dead poet society them coming of age at an english boarding school but like not being able to leave the grounds and like you know it's it's sort of a little like red sparrow uh, which also you're only saying Charlotte that because Rampling Charlotte Rampling
1: <laughs> Is at the front of the classroom Is the only reason you're saying
0: that It's similar, it's a very insular school setting With Charlotte Rampling at the at the center of it Whatever, and then the second half Is with non-child actors And she does actually actors.
1: teach sex education Doesn't she?
0: Twice, right. both movies Maybe you're not One if it's that
1: far off
0: All books and movies are connected It's the same school They just got her from that little row house Later and Carted her off to Red Sparrow University. <laughs> Keep going. Um, and then the second half is them with adult actors with Carrie Mulligan, Andrew Garfield, and uh Kira Knightley, as their sort of lives come to an end very quickly. But there's not a ton of like intrigue about like there's no secret police there's no like resistance force uh coming together to have these well you find out i don't think it's a spoiler you find out pretty quickly like the school was sort of a clone school they've been they're like clones of rich people who when they need their organs harvested for replacements that doesn't make any fucking sense to me though We'll, we'll get to that in a second but they have their organs harvested in like one to four surgeries where this person just has their organs taken away and put into their double. Um, But yeah. And then after they either expire during the surgery or like after the fourth one, they just like don't hook them up to the ventilator and they just expire that way. The geography and the way in which details are given to us is sort of odd. So like this world is sort of sort of shown to be off a little. We sort of have that vague title card where it essentially implies that when the transplant was invented, that's when humanity stopped. It references 1952, which was when the first transplant I looked it up later. It was when the Barner, first transplant. Right? Yeah. So they're saying that transplantation is like the key to immortality or whatever. And then we are in this very sort of stuffy British boarding school setting. And then we'll get like one little tidbit, like, Oh, there's a rumor that if you go beyond this gate and get your ball, that they'll fucking cut off your arms and feet or your hands and feet. And so they don't do that. And then there's like a, uh, like a John Keating character, the Sally Hawkins one that comes in and teaches the math for 45 minutes and then is like, You're all clones! You're fucked! <laughs> Everybody run for it. And the kids are like, Your huh? paper fell. Let me get that for you.
1: It's a very good acting.
0: It's good acting, but like I never understood like the world enough to understand the subtlety of what they were doing. So like that, this woman was having sort of a breakdown telling these kids like about their fate. Like we didn't know if she was telling the truth. We didn't know how much the kids already knew because it doesn't seem like there's any security at this place. But they no. do have to like swipe in and out. So it's it's sort of weird to me to to know if the school itself is what is strange or if it is the whole world around the school that is also strange, but you're never exposed to it really. So there's no real knowing. And while that I assume could work in a novel in a movie where you're trying to like do the coverage of the world. It's, it's sort of odd to shoot it the way it's shot also to make it look like a, just a charming boarding school movie. Yeah. If it's really like a just horrifying dystopian future.
1: I think it's just having a persistent adaptation problem, which is the book is clearly told from Kathy H.'s perspective, and the movie is shot in this kind of wider third person. Because the only reason you can keep people in a pen this way and justify the sort of really stilted voiceover in the beginning, middle, and end when the acts turn over is to have the characters know so little and be so fucked in the head and you can really feel Mulligan and Garfield playing this at times that they don't they don't even think to look beyond the fence, so to speak. Like, they can't. Um, they can only wonder who might get their organs and, like, what they may be thinking too, which is something that could be very beautiful um, and kind of, uh, you know, drip with a certain melancholy in novel right. but doesn't work here. So did it kick you off on any allegory ideas to occupy your time as this movie otherwise just kind of crawled by?
0: I was sort of playing with the notion of, is this a movie about how baby boomers have laid their, like their sort of life liability on the back of the millennials? That's interesting. So it's like this whole generation of people that were made in the image of baby boomers have to prop up those aging baby boomers, even if they live past like what they're, but like, that's not really what the movie is. If you never go past these like sort of wandering millennials who are like, don't know how to order. It's so weird that they give them like life lessons too, like how to behave in the world, but then they like, don't know how to behave in the world. It's very weird that the tr- the
1: twist in this movie If there is a twist To like reframe how the story is being told Has to do with the reputation of the school yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the like, big thing You were supposed to think that this school Was the epicenter for the ultimate torture Of this, you know Lab-created generation of people Who are slaughtered by the time they're 30 And Charlotte Ramping's like no, no, no. We were, like, uh, the last Montessori school, seeing if you guys could still draw,
0: if you had souls. Yeah, they were just, like, a non-profit group trying to prove that we should stop murdering these people and failing. It's Again, it's a well-written
1: speech. Garland loves that, to put the words in the mouth of that character. But, like, right. I didn't really care that much about the reputation of the Institute. That wasn't the question I was asking. It wasn't one of the top 10.
0: She wasn't exactly, like, offering to put them in the basement, you know, so like, they wouldn't get taken to surgery. She was like, "Yeah, we tried through usual routes and couldn't raise enough money, so you guys are fucked. I'll right. see ya.
1: I think it's maybe an underrated quality of Garland's work that he is english and a few of these stories are very english just the sense of you being trapped on an island factors very prominently into 28 days later where they realize that they've just been quarantined by the world um and people who have sort of like you know misgivings about uh, the legacy and reputations of english culture I think you could feel some of that anger coming through Danny Boyle in that movie. And I think it must factor into this, because Ishigura is English as well, um, of just like, yeah, where, is that the thing I'm not getting? Like, where are they going to go? You're going to drive into the tunnel? Like, you maybe they just can't go anywhere, and so why would they ever think to?
0: It's like they're in a real-life Truman show, And they're so, like, comfortable with it that they just don't... They choose not to go anywhere. But, like, that... A movie about the human spirit that, like, doesn't cover any sort of desire to, like, escape? I don't know. Is sort of odd to me. No, you're
1: right, though. I just... It got me thinking, like, you know, every... If this movie were set in America, you would say... A character would be like, I guess we drive to Mexico. Because that's the classic stupid American safety. Are you
0: arguing that, like, he's saying because, like, the British are so polite and society is so strict that, like, even if we had a class of people that we were just harvesting their organs, they would not rise up in any capacity, nor would anyone around us say anything about it because of the implications to our healthcare system? I don't remotely
1: have the awareness to answer this question, but I think this movie has to be saying something about like a, like a country rural class of, it's very suspicious how white the kids are, right? Like when you just see all their faces in the opening scene, it's almost like Romanic with the cameras being like, they are all white in case you are wondering. And right. that, that also
0: got stirred this idea up for me. Like, if it's clear that it's just a series of families that they're there to, you know, keep intact, like, some interaction with them, (laughs) I think, would have been more... It just doesn't make sense to me that rich people would have the humanity to let these clones just, like, hang out. And just as long as they, like, check in places but it seems like the check-in system was set up by the school that even had like nothing to do with the cloning like do they just keep them in labs now that was my other question too is it se- it seems like they were the last class of clones that were allowed into the world so now i think they're just like living in the labs the mm-hmm. they're like minority report or the matrix sure. or something I don't disagree with any of this. I think
1: there are 50 different things you could do to make this script have more internal logic. For sure.
0: Yeah, I guess for someone who's so into that internal logic, and at least even if he doesn't say it outright, just like knowing that it's there, like and that's what I think you will or will not be into with devs, I'm kind of into the obscurity of the central conceit. Uh, Okay. But... This one I just don't think the underlying like substance is there for him to nerd out about so it feels ultimately kind of stuffy kind of like a boring focus features I know it's fox searchlight but it's so fox <laughs> searchlight where a bunch of people in an old car and Andrew Garfield's like screaming on the road cuz he like can't take it right it's a little it's a little weepy and melodramatic for me
1: a hundred percent agree with all of this um i before I rate it when I'm gonna rate it, I do want to give just like one more hat tip to the actors who I think are hamstrung other than this like one note of confusion where I think they've all read the book and they understand that like the most interesting note they can play is not knowing how the outside world works, so Where the scene where Andrew Garfield walks in on Carrie Mulligan, like reading the porno magazine, and she's flipping the pages really fast as though, like, looking for information. And she's like, He's like, What are you doing, Kathy? And she's like, Just looking at dirty pictures, flip, flip, flip. Like, those are good notes. And it's even pretty heartbreaking when Garfield says to Kira Knightley, because they think they spot her original, the person she's based on, which, again, like, how do they know what that is? But he's like trying to console her, and he's like, She was really close, wasn't she? As though they were like looking for a, looking for just a physical match for the fun of it. The actors are really trying, but I think this is a bad bad.
0: Yeah, I think it is a bad bad. You almost want to give it a good bad, but I just in don't
1: the style of good bad.
0: I just don't think anyone's that good in it either. Like there's some compelling. It's got Ella Purnell, who's on *Sweep* now, and she's sort of interesting as the younger Kira Knightley, right? But and then Charlotte Rampling, of course, is terrifying as always. But yeah, I just don't—I don't know. It's even got uh, Captain Hux, General Hux. I think. Sorry, you it's even got General Hux. Correct.
1: No, you're not taking it again. You Damn fuck! It. It's me. I'm the spy. Um, that show that
0: he's in um, with Merritt Weaver looks good on HBO I don't know yeah this one as much as I want to give it a it's definitely in the style of good bad but I I think if you poke at it even a little bit and maybe I would be nicer if it wasn't an Alex Garland podcast right but because I think I'm looking for the Alex Garland seams on this thing like it's so to see how many there are is sort of frustrating
1: it's interesting yes to see him try something that feels more indebted to a different era of literary science fiction and i think is also interesting if we can talk for just a couple minutes that the movie he does after this is like enough with the fucking sentimentality of these people who believe if they're in love enough they get to keep the clones alive i'm gonna go make a movie in a south african tenement building where uh Guy called the judge just like machine guns people willy nilly while Lena Headey he peels people's skin off.
0: Like he yeah. really swings the other way for dread. In terms of being overly sentimental, for sure.
1: Yes. Um. You started watching Dread and then you were like, "Chance, please,
0: God, can we not?" Is that I read the fair yeah I read the first paragraph of the plot synopsis on Wikipedia. I was like, I don't think so. It doesn't go on that long. The skin thing. I don't want to watch a movie where someone gets their skin peeled off in slow motion.
1: It's probably better because you would have just been like it's a ticky the entire time, and now I don't have to deal with that. Um, great. That movie is really curious because it has no the ent- uh, the entire time I'm waiting for like the the RoboCop thing where the movie like will nod at you to be like this some of the worst ultra-violence you've ever seen, or I should say the most ultra ultra violence you've ever seen, is is supposed to be a little bit knowing and the movie just like never fucking winks. And it's uh kinda horrifying and incredibly ballsy and Garland, if you listen to uh Carl Urban who stars in the whose chin stars in the movie, um, is just like, I never took direction from Pete Travis, I just asked Alex Garland what he wanted me to do. Um, so that's kind Incredible. of his unofficial debut. Wow! And then, of course, the if he y- makes his real debut with Ex Machina. If you, by the way, if you can tolerate um, like B movie horrifying insanity, I do think it's interesting. But if that's not your bag, do not do it.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna have to go with the latter camp on that one.
1: Um, Ex Machina is one of my favorite movies like, of the last decade, probably. Wow. It's really... I don't, I don't know where it would rank, but it would probably be in, like, the top 30 or 40. Wow. I liked Annihilation a lot. I... Yeah. I I think we debated this is like, Annihilation, is it better? Because Ex Machina is just so spare that, right. like you can just be like, oh yeah, there's like 10 things in this movie and they're all pretty close to perfect. And Annihilation is more like that sunshine thing, right? Of like, there's 50 things in this movie and 20 of them are a mystery.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just think it makes... It's so interesting the the choices that are made with the Annihilation, especially having read the book and seeing where he wanted to put his own stamp on it that as great as Ex Machina is, I do think Annihilation is a better movie.
1: That's, wow. Because now, because this is the podcast, can you tell us where he deviates and puts his own garland touch where Vandermeer did not?
0: Well, they're not all women in the book. And the way the book ends is a lot different in terms of like the, the it's not quite like the shapeshifter thing from the movie. That's that's not really the ending of the book.
1: Is the book just as ambiguous or more No,
0: ambiguous? the book's a little bit more clear and then there's two more books.
1: Ex Machina by the way is on Netflix right now and Annihilation is on Prime and Hulu and you can find both of those in our Archives on berealpodcast.com. I don't know how the ex machina one sounds. That is from 2015, which, by the way, our show turned five years old this month.
0: Hey, uh, look at us go. Have you ever watched any devs yet?
1: Nope. All tomorrow for me.
0: Nice. So, yeah, I mean, that'll be where we pivot from here, c- continuing this conversation, but also starting fresh. Sure. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Devs part one. So we'll do. It's eight episodes, so we'll do the first four and then the back four when those are released.
1: Yeah, I don't know. In these times, there is something weirdly, ironically therapeutic about watching the movie where it's like, you don't have any control. Especially when you're dealing with something like The Shimmer. So don't worry about it.
0: Yeah, don't worry about The Shimmer. Maybe coronavirus the shimmer. is The Shimmer. Maybe this is the allegory. Maybe Alex Garland's having a big old laugh.
1: We don't know what it wants or if it wants. One of my favorite screenwriterisms from that movie. I think I want to end this episode with one of the great single clips from a movie in recent times. It's from Ex Machina and it's when Oscar Isaac dances with the AI. Can we just go to that and I can bid you adieu?
0: Let's do it, buddy. Talk to you tomorrow. Go ahead, dance with Saturday her. Night. Dance with her. No? You don't like dancing? She does. Come on, buddy. After a long day of touring test, you gotta unwind. What were you doing with Ava? What? You tore up her picture. I'm gonna tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out.